Our first scripture reading is Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. All right, so our gospel reading today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Just say this, the Lord needs it, and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door, outside in the street. As they were untying it, some bystanders said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Word of God. So as we've been talking about this morning, it is Palm Sunday. Welcome to Palm Sunday, uh, the, the first day of Holy Week, uh, or the last day of Lent, depending on how you want to look at it, it kind of straddles the line. Um, but this is the week that we commemorate Jesus's last week, Jesus's week in Jerusalem. Uh, and Palm Sunday, since it's a day that, that happens every year, it's kind of a story that we hear a lot. We hear different ways of talking about it. So as a point of business, I would just wanted to say that my, my sermon today is heavily influenced by a pastor that I follow a lot named Brian Zond and his sermon, There's Always Some Dude on a Horse. And he calls it that because he points out that no matter where you go in the world, basically if you end up in a city with more than 2,000 people in it, there is going to be a statue of some dude on a horse. And so I have some pictures of some uh, dudes on horses. Uh, this one's in Madrid, um, in Spain. Uh, the next one, in St. Petersburg, that one at least gives us a subtitle, so we know that's Peter the Great. Uh, the next one is in Westminster. I believe that's one of the King Charles's. There's multiple of them, so I can't remember. Uh, the next one uh, is down in South America, in Buenos Aires. I thought that one looked really neat. Uh, and the next one is in Copenhagen. Uh, and then the last one there that is our guy. That's George Washington in Washington, D.C. So it's like all of a sudden it means something, right? Um, so why is it we've got all of these dudes on horses all over the world, right? There's just all of these statues of dudes on horses. And I was in getting pictures for this. I heard about the horse code. Have you all ever heard of the horse code? So basically 
this is not even true. It's just one of those weird things. No sculptors actually hold to this. But basically, if all of the feet of the horse are on the ground, then the uh, the guy that was riding the horse didn't die in any wars. And if two of the feet are on the ground, then he died in the war. And if one of the feet is up, so three of them are on the ground, then the guy that's on the horse got wounded and later died from those wounds, but didn't die during the battle. Uh, but again, that is just a complete coincidence. I think like one in three actually follow that. Uh, I read a thing that said that of the 30 dudes on horses in Washington, D.C., only 10 of them follow that code. So don't believe it if you've ever heard it before. Uh, I fell down a rabbit hole. Um, but no matter where we go, we see these statues. And this dude on a horse motif really came from one guy. 300 years before Jesus, if you could throw that last slide up there. Who knows who that is? Thank you. I was just basically waiting for you to answer it. Yes, this is Alexander the Great. One of the most famous conquerors in all of history who lived from 356 to 323 BCE. He's so famous about being a dude on a horse. We know that horse's name. That is Bucephalus, which means the ox head, I believe. Is that right? A loud roaring mouth. Do y'all ever think he just makes stuff up to appease us? <laughs> All right. Uh, but not only that, we know when the horse was born and when the horse died. It lived to the ripe old age of 29. That's how much we know about this horse. Um, for being a war horse, that's a, that's a feat. Um, so Alexander was a conqueror who conquered all the way from Greece to India. Uh, the, in, from what I understand, this is actually a pretty accurate representation of what he looked like, except for the huge eyes. That was kind of an, a way of saying that he was wise. Um, but yeah, for the most part, that's a pretty accurate picture, except for those ungodly huge eyes. Okay. Um, so he was so infamous and so known that he would have been known all over the world, at the, all over the known world at the time, um, as this conqueror. And at the time that he was conquering, people were riding. And one of those riders we heard from this morning, the prophet Zechariah, when, um, when he was riding and he said, uh, of God, he will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. You see, this, plus this prophecy of a king riding in on a donkey, was not just a, a poetic way of saying it. it was in direct opposition to this image. It was in direct opposition to what was going on in the world at that time. In a world where the natural response to a conqueror is to be a bigger conqueror, Zechariah prophesies that who will actually save and liberate Israel will not do so with a stampede or with a battalion, but with a humble hand. In a world of continual violence and war, Zechariah saw the coming of peace. And not just for Israel, but for peace that would be felt in all the nations. And this is the prophecy that Jesus set out to fulfill when he sent his disciples out to find a donkey. So we know that before this day, Jesus had not been ministering in Jerusalem, right? He had been throughout Galilee, throughout all of the, the, the smaller towns. And he's been there for years but he'd never stepped foot in Jerusalem. 
during his time of ministry. But this is the week of Passover. This is Jesus showing up for this huge party, this huge holiday. So basically, if you want to look at it, because Passover is the celebration of the liberation of the Jews from Egypt, it's kind of like Easter and the 4th of July rolled up into one. It is both a religious holiday, it is both a, a, a ceremonial holiday, but it is also a national holiday. It is a celebration of the removal of oppression. Now that's a pretty tough thing to be going through when you're actively being oppressed because Jerusalem in that time is under Roman rule. And Rome, following in the footsteps of Alexander, has basically taken over everywhere. And so Jerusalem is a place that is hoping for liberation, that is feeling this weight of oppression and then celebrating their ancestors being liberated. So, of course, there's some strife there. Not only is there strife, there's also a lot of people. So basically, uh, at the time of, at the time of, before the time of Passover, during the year, Jerusalem has about 40,000 people in it. Okay, but in Passover, Jerusalem swells to 400,000 people. People from all over the country come to Jerusalem to celebrate this. So it becomes kind of a, a, a hotbed of frustration, of desiring of liberation. It becomes kind of a powder keg of revolution because revolutions can and did happen. And they had to be responded to appropriately, right? Because Rome doesn't want that. So history, or Bible trivia, let's put it that way. Who is the governor of Judea at this time? Who's the Roman governor of Judea at this time? Serenian. Okay, I might be wrong then. Who's in the Bible as the governor at this time? Pilate. Okay, so and we know from the story in the gospel, because Jesus meets with Pilate, Jesus is brought before Pilate, rather. So Pilate's in Jerusalem, right? But Pilate doesn't live in Jerusalem normally. It's too far inland. It is not, it's hard to get back to Rome. He normally lives in Caesarea. So why was he in Jerusalem during this time if he wasn't there normally? He was there for Passover. He was there to keep the peace. He was there as a sign of force, as a sign of order, to let the folks know not to try anything. And historians understand that as most likely as a way to do this, he would show up on the Sunday before Passover. So the very day that we have Jesus coming into town on the other side of town, because Jesus would be coming in from the east, because he would come down from Galilee in the north, come in the east gate, and Jesus would be coming in from the west gate Pilate and his guys would be coming into town. And Pilate would be riding a horse. Pilate would be not just riding a horse, he'd be followed by horses. Most people, the estimation is about 600 horsemen carrying swords. And then guys on feet that we don't know the number of because there would have been so many of them. This huge military parade for all intents and purposes is coming in and at the same time Jesus is riding in on a donkey. At the same time that there are a, a parade with horses and swords, on the east side of town is a parade with a donkey 
and palm branches. So I know the, the, common, the common thing, we've probably all heard this before because pastors say on Sunday they were all screaming Hosanna, Hosanna and on Friday they were all screaming crucify him. Who's heard that? I mean, it's a pretty common refrain because it sounds good. But the folks that are saying Hosanna here are coming in with Jesus. These are the folks who have followed Jesus from Galilee into Jerusalem to take part in this with Jesus because they believe what Jesus has been saying. So we have all of these folks coming into town, and they are basically saying, hey, we have learned the most amazing thing, and we are here with this guy, and y'all won't believe what he's going to do. They honestly believed that Jesus was who he said he was. They honestly believed that the, a reign similar to the reign of David, but a reign of peace was coming in because they weren't armed. They weren't expecting something. They were expecting Jesus to do his thing. And so they come in, they put their coats, they put the palm branches on the ground, and they have this processional of Jesus. I've gone so off script, I can't remember where I'm at. Okay, so the thing about these two, right, is that one of them is what the world expects order to look like. And the other one, flies in the face of it. So there's two parades, has two different groups of people in it. Um, one of which thinks the other one's crazy. In the West, when Pilate and all of his folks were coming in, if they heard of all of this happening with Jesus's people, they would think, one, this is an insurrection. But two, what do they think they're going to do? How can they beat us? We've got at least 600 horses and God knows how many swords, and this will be easy work. But the people on the east side also think Pilate's folks are crazy because they see what Jesus expects of the world. They see what the possibility of peace could be. They see a change. They see the opposite of how the world works, and they see that opposite coming into fruition with Jesus. So the problem for us is that, that we have to pick a parade, ultimately. We have to pick between a parade of swords and horses or a parade of palm branches and a donkey. We have to pick between war, violence, and death or peace, humility, and love. A speaker and writer named Jonathan Martin said recently of protest he was talking about the fact that protest is such a such a nasty word these days and he said christians find protest odd not because we are disconnected from politics but because we're disconnected from worship praise has always been a form of protest if worship in spirit and in truth were more central to us resistance would be too because basically that's what this is, is a protest. It's a counter-protest. Well, not a counter-protest. It's an argument against the status quo. It is an argument against the way the world works. And not only is it a protest in this way, it is a way for Jesus to plan a protest in the future. Because, I don't know if you notice in verse 11, basically he immediately leaves this processional and goes and he cases 
the temple. Because who remembers, does anybody remember what happens to the temple the next day? He turns over the tables of the money changers. He is looking into what is going on. The computer fell asleep. Um, uh, he is deciding, he's basically saying, all right, this was step one of the protest. Step two is going to be tomorrow. So like I said before, we're going to march in one of these two parades. We're going to be marching with the horses, or we're going to be marching with palm branches. Do we see the world the way Caesar sees the world, or do we see the world the way Christ sees the world? This decision seems hard sometimes because we live in a world of Caesar still. The world around us is still the world of Caesar. But the world has been made by Caesars. The world has been made by Pilate's parades. It is a world of rage, war, death, and imperialism with violent control. And, but if you think about it, it's always been that way. But still, when Jesus came, there was a hope for a future. The Greco-Roman world had, you know, they had their gods, they had their goddesses, and they had their canonical texts, their sacred texts, and one of them basically was the Iliad. Who had to read the Iliad in school? Or the Odyssey. Basically the same thing. Um, not the same thing, but you know, the same kind of thing. But they're a story filled with rage. Stories filled with gods and with people angry and hateful and killing. But at the time that Homer would have been writing the Iliad, Isaiah was writing in Judea. And he was writing that God would judge between the nations and arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. These are two conflicting understandings of the world. There's the world of Achilles, and then there's the world of Isaiah. Some see the world in the way of Rome, that the understanding from control and order can only come from war. And others take the same position of the early church, who from the very beginning of the church understood that the coming of Christ brought peace, that the Prince of Peace brought us into a world where we can beat our swords into plowshares. So as I said earlier, who will we march with? Let us pray.